Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Uh, today we'll be interviewing a racing savant, Hayden Swank. I know that we have just gotten back to normal. I was watching some of the races this weekend, and so it's a perfect time to talk about uh, NASCAR with my good friend Hayden, who is one of the few black NASCAR up-and-coming drivers who's making a name for himself. Happy Memorial Day, y'all. Shout out to everyone who is uh, commemorating today, spending time memorializing and remembering all of those who sacrificed for us and paid the ultimate price. Um, I'm actually thinking about a friend of mine, Darius Jennings, who uh, was killed in Iraq. He was a 2000 graduate of Orange Road Wilkinson High School. I got to make sure I said that right. Yeah, he was a 2000 graduate of Orange Road Wilkinson High School. Um, And his mother, Elaine, who still lives in South Carolina, uh, does a lot of work with wounded warriors in the area. And uh, today I'm actually doing the MRF. Some of you all may or may not know what the Murph is, but you run a mile, you do 100 pull-ups, 200 push-ups, 300 air squats, um, and then you run another mile. And today I'm doing that in honor of uh, Darius. And as you all enjoy your day, please drink it up, hang out by the pool, do all of those great things. But always remember the reason why we have the day. Um, Before we get to Hayden, I I do need to also talk a little politics today. Uh, And I have to talk about um, Justice Breyer's new book, The Authority of the Court and the Peril of Politics. Don't get me started. So instead of a resignation letter from Justice Breyer, we got a book we don't need and didn't ask for. And what's the book about exactly? Well, I ain't read it yet. I can tell you that I read a lot of books that come to the Bakari Sellers podcast Justice Breyer didn't send me his book, but we have seen a lot of quotes. And the quotes that I've read that are particularly troublesome are the ones where he's warning Democrats against overly politicizing the Supreme Court. And from my read of early reviews of the book, Breyer wants Democrats to step away from things like expanding the Supreme Court and imposing term limits on Supreme Court justices. And instead, he wants us to engage in more bipartisanship and respect the, quote, rule of law. Okay, now he's doing his book tour and saying these things the same week that Republicans blocked a bipartisan commission to study the January 6th insurrection as sitting members of Congress like Matt Gates and uh, Marjorie, oh, I always mispronounce her name, Marjorie Taylor Greene actively foment violence against the government and spread misinformation. And as Arizona Republicans are still looking for bamboo particles on ballots, that's actually a true story, uh, as they challenge this past November's election results, bipartisanship becomes hard when one party lives and operates in an alternate reality. And let me just say that Breyer is out of touch. Um, He's old and he still fundamentally believes our system of law and the politics that develop it are functional. And I guess if you're an older guy, white guy on the Supreme Court, That system has worked for you. So I get it. But you all see why this is dangerous coming from him now, right? And the court has been politicized since its inception, and particularly so since Bush v. Gore. So I don't know what he's talking about. If anything, the tone, deafness of Breyer's book, when he knows many of us want him to go home, only underscores why he should go home, why our justices shouldn't have lifetime appointments, and why we need younger, more diverse justices that are actually in tune with reality. We don't need a book from Justice Breyer. We need you to retire. 
you're standing in the way of a black woman finally becoming a Supreme Court justice. And, you know, that's important. You can write plenty of books in retirement. You can co-write the next My Vanishing Country with me. And that's that on that. Now on to our show with the young brother, good brother, although he's at UGA, Hayden Swank. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. And welcome to another special episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. You know, most of you all know, if you've been here since episode one, that I am a NASCAR fan, weirdly enough. In fact, I had, as one of my first guests from Fox Sports, Alan Kavana, who is one of the preeminent, he likes when I say that, and he has some of the best hair, but preeminent journalists covering the sport of NASCAR, and he has the best hair and an amazing wife. And we've been talking about this young man over the weekend, and now I get a chance to interview him, none other than... Hayden Swank. What's going on, my brother? How are you? I'm doing all right. Happy to be here. No, and shout out to the Overtime team, man. Overtime Racing, everybody over at, oh, there you go. Oh, we have a symbol. We got a symbol. Is that That's it? it? I got to throw it up. Okay, shout there out to the, up, over, to the Overtime Racing team for, for putting me in touch with you. I want to, you know, let's start. First of all, Hayden, how old are you? And when did you start driving? That's the question. Um, so right now I'm 19 years old, but I started racing when I was seven. Seven. Oh my goodness. I have a two-year-old. I can't, his mom's going to have a heart attack when I say we're going to have him racing at seven. Uh, let's first introduce you to our listeners. For those who don't pay much attention to NASCAR or stock car racing, and I hate this question, but we got to ask it, who is Hayden Swank other than having the best name in all the sports? Yeah. So, you know, as you said, my name is Hayden Swank. I'm 19 years old. I'm from Georgia and I drive race cars. I drive uh, late models for overtime and tech racing. And my goal is to make it to NASCAR one day. I want to race with the big boys. You deserve it. What first sparked your interest in professional racing? This, this sounds just silly. I mean, like most people, you know, they're brought up around racing, you know, either their family raced or their family was a fan of racing. For me, I just like Hot Wheels cars as a kid. And eventually my my, uh, my mom turned on NASCAR for me and you know I was hooked. Uh, and eventually, you know, once we moved to Georgia, there's a racetrack not too far away from where we lived. And it was like, a, it was a little, like, I think it was like 122nd of a mile. It was real small, but it was. Is that even, that's not even a racetrack. That's tiny, tiny. <laughs> I mean, you could probably run around that thing in about 20 seconds, but um, 
the, the point was like, you know, um, it was a racetrack designed for, you know, younger kids. And once I saw and realized that, you know, kids my age were racing there, I was like, I was telling my parents, it was not a matter of like, could I do this? It was more like, all right, I got to do this. Like, this is my thing. Oh, that's dope, man. I, who was your favorite driver growing up? I am a Jimmy Johnson fan through and through. It's been rough not having him uh, this year. He was his first year in retirement yeah. from NASCAR, but uh, he was always just a, just a class act. Uh, he won a lot, which was also very cool. But um, yeah, I grew up wearing 48 gear. Yeah, I'm a junior fan who is a class act. Can't necessarily say he won a whole lot, but I am a I am a I am a junior fan. I love him. Is there anybody that you see out there right now? I mean, you probably don't want to say that you admire some of these guys that are racing right now because you're gonna be on the track with them one day soon, right? Uh, yeah. You know, I don't want to give nobody nobody too much credit per se because <laughs> I don't want to have to take it back. Uh, someday, <laughs> that makes sense. I say right now, my two favorite guys out there are like Tyler Reddick and Bubba Wallace. Both are really um, fun to watch. And I think that they're going to have awesome careers in the sport. Yeah, Bubba finally has some sponsors. They have some money. Got a good car, got a good team. Bubba's going to do really, really well. But one of the things I noticed, and I'll forgive you for this because I'm a big Gamecock, but whatever. You're a student at UGA, which is unfortunate, but whatever. I, I... I, I'll let that pass. And All for right. most listeners, I'm guessing their job in college was at The Gap or doing work study. But you're building a professional racing career while being a full-time student at UGA. What are you studying and how do you balance the demands of being a professional uh, race car driver and being a student? Um, yeah, so I'm majoring in marketing and advertising. Uh, that's, I'm like, you know, I'm still taking a full course load at Georgia and I'm still trying to make it to the races every week during the season and uh, you know, focus on improving my game, working out, um, getting on the simulator as much as I possibly can. And it's a lot. I'm not going to lie. Probably the biggest, biggest challenge I have is just trying to just find the hours in the day. You know, I'm probably up to like midnight, 1am most nights, just trying to get it, fit everything in. And I will say that, you know, being in a pandemic has like one benefit and that's, I can take my classes on the go most times. You know, there was a bunch of times this last year where I had a class on a Friday and I had to be at the track for a practice on a Friday. So I'd be you know, like calling in on my Zoom at a racetrack, just sitting, <laughs> sitting in the trailer. Like you couldn't barely hear anything with all the cars on the track. But, you know, I think I'm, I'm th- I think I'm managing all right, at least for the time being. So, listen, one of the things that many people want to know, including myself, is give me some background on how someone gets to the NASCAR or IndyCar circuit. Like, what are the minor leagues of professional car racing and how does someone get in the mix to race in a recognized minor league of the two major professional racing leagues? How do, how do you how do you achieve that final goal? What do you have to do? What am I when I pull for when I pull for you, Hayden, what am I pulling for you to be able to accomplish where you are right now? Yeah. So first off, you want to win as much as you possibly can at whatever level you're racing at. Right now I'm racing in the late model level, but I'd like to move into ARCA or trucks in the next few years. And the best way for me to do that is to prove myself at this level by winning as many races as possible, proving I'm consistent in bringing home, you know, when I don't win a good finish and don't tear up the race car too much. But the second major factor, you know, it takes to make it to the top level of racing is money. And that comes in the form of sponsorship dollars and, you know, factory support. And that's really, really tough to come by. It's almost like getting accepted to college. You know, you might get accepted to Yale or Harvard or a really big college like that. 
but that's not the that's not the end of the story. You know, you still got to pay that tuition. You still got to pay your own way. It's not like other sports where somebody's willing to make the investment in you. Let's say like football, where Georgia or the Atlanta Falcons, if they pick you to be part of your team, you know, they're willing to invest in your career. In racing, it doesn't necessarily work like that. Somebody might want you driving their race cars, but they more or less will have to, you know, you'll have to bring your own funding to make that happen. Oh my goodness. That sounds tough. I was looking at, uh, I believe it's Raja Karuth. You familiar yep. with that name as well? And you and him are like the younger, the young guns kind of like on the, on the rise here. How does, how does someone, cause you know, you gotta, there are people with some built-in advantages who come from families who you're racing families and you don't necessarily come from that racing families, but they have a leg up when it comes to finances of getting into the races in the first place. I right. mean, how do we go about, how do you go about getting in line with those sponsorships and that type of money? Because one of the things that I didn't know until I got older was that no matter how good a driver you are, money buys you the equipment you need. Um, absolutely. You know, for me, I don't have those family connections. I don't have the the built-in access to those resources. So for me, the biggest tool I have is LinkedIn. You know, over the pandemic, I I really grinded out on LinkedIn just every day, sending messages to people that I thought would be willing to help me out. And um, hopefully I could help them out in, in exchange. And that was that was my days for like two, three whole months. And eventually I came across Dan Porter in overtime. Uh, he's the CEO of overtime. And you know he saw my story and what we were trying to accomplish in the sport. And he wanted to be a part of it. So yes, it is harder to get in front of uh, potential sponsors just to make the pitch to be their driver. But I don't see even um, sometimes it's even harder to, you know, to make it happen. Well, shout out to the overtime team for at least believing in you. That's the first step, right? Now you got to go out there and do the winning. Um, talk to me about NASCAR's drive for diversity program and how has it been helpful in you getting the financial support or the, the exposure necessary to break into the NASCAR circuit? Has it been there for you or are there other things that need to be done? I was a part of NASCAR's Drive for Diversity program in 2018. I was a part of their youth team. Uh, I think I was 16 at the time. But um, yeah, so I joined that team for one year. Uh, during my time with the team, you know, I met some uh, some great people. I uh, was able to grow as a driver. But at the same time, I felt like I, I really didn't have the resources necessary to really perform at the level I thought I could. And it really showed in terms of my race results from that season. Uh, I wasn't really, I wasn't a part of the program going forward, but from what I've heard from other drivers that are a part of it right now, uh, the program has made some strides and uh, providing better equipment and funding for their drivers. And I think it's uh, showing, like you said, Raja and LeVar Scott are both doing a tremendous job right now. You know, I don't know. I, I take hate and swank any day of the week. I just want you to know that. Uh, but shout, out, shout out to Raja, too. I've been reading up on him, doing a great job. Talk about being a young black driver for a second. Do you feel like there's added pressure for you being a young black driver in a sport that's been dominated by white drivers for so long? Um, yeah, you know, you definitely feel the pressure to represent. Uh, you know, that's always in the back of your head that you don't want to give anybody any excuse to knock you down. And I feel like every time I'm out there on the track, I have to you know, represent not only for myself in my career, but for everybody else that looks like me or kind of looks like me. Um, you know, they don't have as many people to look up to in this sport. So I feel like it's on me to 
put myself in the equation to win races and put myself in the front as often as I possibly can in order um, you know, to do that. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. How big is Bubba Wallace's emergence to you personally and to the sport of professional racing and diversifying both the driver ranks and potentially uh, NASCAR's fan base? You know, Bubba Wallace, not only being a part of the sport, but becoming a larger and larger player in this sport is it's a huge deal because before him, it was pretty much 58 years. Yeah, I think that's about right. Um, since a black driver had yeah. won a race at NASCAR's highest level. So, you know, for me growing up, you know, it was cool to see Wendell Scott had won a race, but it just felt really far removed for me personally. You know what I mean? That was then. And right now there, there's nothing happening. There was nothing happening for me growing up in terms of black drivers really making it in the sport. You know, Bill Lester got a few starts, but there's nobody to really truly have a place in the sport since he was there. And, you know, seeing him take on like incredible amounts of, of adversity over the last year. Um, it was, it was really inspiring and, you know, it really showed that I have a path to follow in this sport and really just reaffirm my belief that one day I can make it. You know, one of the things when I look at you though, I don't see you just making it or winning a few races, but you know, also possibly becoming the face of the sport. And I feel like that's probably one of your goals, not just to be the face of the sport, but also be the best driver ever. But that comes with certain challenges along the way um, and maybe a fan base that may be resistant to you in particular. How do you process that possibility if you get what you want? You'll be a target for fans or some fans, not all, don't want to generalize in any sense, but you'll be a target for some fans that don't want to see you succeed. Some of the same things that Bubba Wallace goes through on a daily basis now. You know, I, I don't let that phase me. I'm going to do what I want to do in life. And I think even this past year has really prepared me. I think, you know, just being a part of overtime and people seeing the success we were having when we were winning races, being a you know competitive force on the track. I think a lot of people saw that. And I've already got, gotten comments and messages of people, you know, that clearly don't want me to succeed and are trying to find whatever excuse they can to, to knock me down or, blame me for whatever reason that you know, um, I'm taking something away from this sport, but uh, I know I don't see it that way, obviously. And I'm just going to keep running my race. That's all you can do, brother. You, you mentioned it, but how important have your partners at Overtime been in helping to tell your story and raise your profile as you break into the professional circuit? Oh, I mean, I literally could not do this without them and Old Spice, you know, backing me along the way, um, them believing in me. Uh, when I really didn't have a whole lot else going on for me, uh, they they really stepped up and helped me pursue my dream. And I'm I'm very thankful for that. But I'm also thankful for the opportunity to tell my story. There's not many black drivers in this sport to begin with. And I feel like a lot of the times their their stories really go unsung or unnoticed. Uh, Over time's really given me the platform. And they have a bunch of great storytellers that are were really committed to showing what it's really like to be a black driver coming up through the ranks in the sport. 
What's your season like right now, though? How are you doing? Wins and losses? What's next? I mean, tell me where you're going, where you're headed, those type things. Right now, you know, I can't say a whole lot. I, I want to. I see everybody else is racing. They already got their 2021 going and underway. I have not yet got to the point where I can say what I'm doing this year and what the what the plan is. But hopefully it won't be too long before before that happens. You'll be on the track, though, right? I'm in some way I will be on the track in 2021. Yes. That's all. I mean, that's all we owe for. How far away do we think we're from our goal of being in NASCAR? When am uh, I going to be able to go to Darlington or when am I going to be able to go see you in uh, Martinsville or, or down in Daytona? Uh, I can't, you know, I can't put a number on something like that. There's, there's a lot of, a lot of unknowns in play there, but hopefully it won't be too long. Um, you know, I, man, I don't want to put a number on it because I feel like that really puts the pressure on to get there. But oh, the pressure's already on, man. You on the Bakari Sellers podcast? You on the Ringer, man? The pressure's already on. We got overtime with you, Old Spice. That's okay. You don't have to put a number on it. Just know you got a lot of people pulling for you, and we'll be All watching. Right. We'll be watching every season, looking for is it the the number thirty five cars you have behind you right there? Maybe maybe that's what we'll rock with. Yeah, yeah. Usually I'm in the thirty five. Now that I'm like moving up, they got me in the four. But I don't know. The number don't matter as much as the name. That's well, that's true. Let's talk about this eight part series you're doing real quick with in, in partnership with Overtime Call Race. How did it come about? You mentioned a little bit of why you wanted to do it, but what do you want viewers to take from race? Yeah, so race, that's our eight part docuseries. It's already two weeks into it. Third week drops on Thursday, third episode. You know, it, it was it was a really, really special production for me. And I think a lot of people at Overtime. And I, uh, I acknowledge the fact that for a lot of people, I'm going to be like one of their first introductions to this world of racing. And I feel like, you know, what I want people to take away from this is that, you know, they're going to face challenges. I'm not going to lie to you and say it's easy, but I want people to know that, you know, there is a way forward in this sport. It's not going to be easy. It, the odds are going to be stacked against you. But I think that, you know, if you, um, if you're good enough, if you have the talent, that someday I think there's a shot that you can make it. Um, if there's anybody out there that wants to get started in racing, message me. My my DMs are always open. Uh, just let me know, and I'll do my best to help you out. How did you and your parents get over the initial fears of having somebody going out there so fast? I mean, that has to be a scary proposition, and you know, it doesn't even phase you anymore, though, huh? You know, I never really, uh, never really thought about the the danger aspect of it too much. Uh, I know my my parents definitely do. My mom, in particular, she's uh, she was always like, you know, really hesitant about me um, getting out there and racing. But I think she's seen that I'm a relatively clean driver. I I don't wreck all too often, and I think she's she's gotten used to it more or less. But I think every time we take a step up in the world of racing, like when we're racing even faster cars, I think the first few times we do it, she's like, all right, maybe, maybe this is, maybe this is a little too far. <laughs> what type, let me ask you this question. What type of car do you drive when you're not in a race car? And don't tell me you drive some type of Ford Focus or, or, or Hyundai, do you? What, what do you drive when you're not in a race car? Um, so funny story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, every, like for years, every dime that I made was poured into racing and, uh, I didn't have money for my own car for a long time. And then eventually my grandparents were just like, here, you can use our old car for your senior year of high school. And I drove a 2002, 2002, I think Mercury Grand, um, Grand Marquis that, uh, it was like, it's like the Mercury version of the crown Vic. 
and I rolled around <laughs> for like years. The thing was, I love that car, but yeah, that that was like my daily uh, my daily driver car for for years. Well, we got to get you something a little bit better than that, Hayden. You know what? I just want to say thank you so much for joining the Bakari Sellers podcast today, brother. I am excited about this series on overtime. I'm excited about your future and your career. Uh, where can people follow you? How can people follow you on Twitter and social media? Hayden Swank 4. That's across Twitter, Instagram, Swank Motorsports on Facebook. That's where we post everything. You can keep up with everything that I'm doing, any developments in my racing racing career. And hopefully um, before too long, we'll have, have some exciting news in the pipeline. Well, I'm excited about that, man. And he's getting that UGA degree. That's unfortunate. He's at UGA, but I still love him. So that's okay. No worries. No worries. Thank you so much, brother, for checking in at the Bakari Sellers Podcast. A pleasure to have you, man. Yes, sir. Really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. Before I let you go, I wanted to talk about this commemoration of the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Massacre particularly the president's visit to Tulsa and how Tulsa has become a new cause celebre. I guess that's how you pronounce it, like when something's hot for the left. Now, obviously, we should recognize Tulsa. We'll do that this week with our guest on Thursday. But platitudes and speeches won't quite do it here because what these survivors need and deserve are the R word, reparations. And while I'm not sure what the president will ultimately say, and I've commended this administration on a host of issues, One area where speeches won't do is around racial justice. That's particularly true when it's coming to atoning for past injustices that have gone unaccounted for and were arguably facilitated by government, as was the case with Tulsa. These events require reparations full stop. We like to talk about healing this country without atonement and accountability. The survivors of Tulsa need their money, and we should cut those checks. The descendants of American slaves, at the very least. And let me not just say American slaves, because that just starts a whole nother conversation. But the descendants of slaves, at the very least, deserve a commission to study what reparations could look like in the United States. And the president can do that right now via executive order. And let's throw Juneteenth in there as a national holiday, too. That would be how you commemorate Tulsa. A voting rights and policing bill would also be nice, but that's on Congress right now. I'll keep my expectations low, but if anyone's listening... That's what accountability and atonement look like. And we love to see it. And that's that on that. We'll see you all on Thursday. Thursday.